Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of the Harper family, who was brutally murdered on July 6, 2003. 39-year-old Joni Harper, her mother, 70-year-old Ernestine Harper, and Joni's three children, 4-year-old Marcus, 23-month-old Lindsay, and 6-week-old Marshall, were all found shot to death inside their home in Bakersfield, California. On the day they were last seen, the family spent the morning at church, but two days went by with no contact from Joni or Ernestine. A friend of Joni's went to check on the family, and when she entered the home, she found a scene too shocking for words. When police first began their investigation, they had no idea who or why someone would murder an entire family. But as they take a closer look, they found out that things aren't always as they appear. This is the Harper family's story. 20 years ago, three generations of the Harper family was brutally murdered inside their home. And as shockingly heinous as these murders were, no one could imagine that the person who had committed these murders was a true wolf in sheep's clothing. Joni Harper was born on November 14, 1963, in Bakersfield, California. She was the youngest of her mom, Ernestine Harper's five children, two boys and three girls. Joni spent her entire life in Bakersfield. She attended McKinley Elementary and Bakersfield High School, where she graduated from in 1988. Joni was a gifted athlete who played multiple sports, but was a star basketball player during her years at Bakersfield High. After high school, Joni attended Southwestern Christian College in Texas, where she received an associate's degree. And continuing her passion for basketball, Joni began officiating basketball games and became the first woman in Kern County to officiate boys' basketball games. In 1994, she began officiating for the North Bakersfield Recreation and Park District, and then went on to also officiate basketball for the California Athletic Collegiate Association. During her years in the basketball community, Joni was well-known and well-respected by the people and young athletes in Bakersfield. 
She loved basketball, but according to people who knew her best, her true passion was for helping children. The desire to help people was something that Joni and her mother Ernestine shared. Ernestine was originally from Texas, but had moved to California in 1961, settling in Bakersfield in 1964. While in Bakersfield, Ernestine earned a reputation for being a community activist, and she was known as an outspoken advocate for people who society had decided were disposable, people who were poor and disenfranchised. Ernestine, whose beliefs were rooted in her Christian faith, believed that everyone, no matter where they came from or what they looked like or how much money they had, were entitled to equal justice and to be treated fairly. Eventually, Ernestine co-founded an organization called Extend a Hand for Justice, and her desire to help people was global. Throughout the years, she traveled to both Africa and South America as a missionary, where she provided money and other resources to some of the poorest communities in the world. Ernestine had a heart of gold, and so it's not hard to understand why Joni was the way she was. Even though Ernestine had four other children, her relationship with Joni was especially close and grew as Joni got older. When it was time for her to have a family of her own, Ernestine was right there to help her daughter. In the late 90s, Joni met a man named Vincent Brothers, and they began dating. Vincent was originally from Long Island and had moved to California in the 80s to attend Cal State Bakersfield, where he got a master's degree in education. According to her family, Vincent seemed like a really nice guy, and Joni fell in love with him. He had been married at least twice before and had a child from a previous relationship, but he also worked at a local elementary school and was moving up the ladder, eventually becoming a school administrator and then an elementary school principal. In 1998, Joni gave birth to her and Vincent's first child, Marcus, and in January 2000, the couple got married. And it seemed like they were on their way to having a fairy tale marriage. At least that's how it appeared from the outside looking in. But it didn't take long for their marriage to fall apart. Vincent would disappear for days at a time, and when he returned, he wouldn't tell Joni where he had been or who he had been with. But it didn't take her long to put the pieces of the puzzle together and realize that her new husband was cheating on her. And so, a month after they got married, their marriage was annulled. But that wasn't the end of their relationship. Joni, according to her brother, said that Vincent was the love of Joni's life, and so she wanted him to be a father to their son. They continued to see each other even after the annulment, and eventually, Joni found out that she was pregnant again. This time, it was a girl who she named Lindsay. Joni and Vincent continued their on-again, off-again relationship after Lindsay was born. At the time, Ernestine was living with her daughter to help her with the kids, but after a couple years apart, Joni and Vincent decided to get married again. At the end of 2002, they found out that they would be having their third child, and so three years after they first got married, Joni and Vincent got secretly remarried in January 2003. But by April of that same year, once again, their marriage began to fall apart. Vincent was up to his old ways, and Joni wasn't happy. At one point, she confided in a friend of hers that she was afraid that Vincent might 
try to get rid of her. And so four months after they remarried, Joni did give birth to the couple's third child, a boy named Marshall. But by the time he was born, their second marriage had hit a point of no return. Joni had tried for the sake of her children to reconcile her marriage. After all, she did want to be married, but it was becoming more clear that her and Vincent's relationship just wasn't going to work. He was also not getting along with Ernestine, who was living with her daughter. They would butt heads, and eventually, Vincent moved into his own apartment. This time, however, the couple did not divorce, and it's not clear what their romantic relationship was like after he moved out. Both Joni and her mother spent a lot of time at church. The Baker Street Church of Christ was like a second home for them, and their church family was a huge part of their lives. And so, when baby Marshall was old enough, Joni couldn't wait to introduce her church to her new addition. On Sunday, July 6, 2003, Joni, her mother, and her three children, Marcus, who was now four, Lindsay, who was almost two, and six-week-old Marshall, went to service that Sunday morning. Their church would typically have a morning and an evening service, and the Harper family would attend both services. And so, After that morning service ended, the family decided that they would stop to go get something to eat before heading home to rest before the evening service. But when the evening service started, the Harper family did not return to church. Now, people in the congregation thought it was odd that the family had not come back like they normally would, but they figured that perhaps they were just tired and decided to stay home. I mean, Joni did have a newborn and two little kids, and so her being too tired to come back wasn't a stretch. After the family had left church and returned back to their home, no one they knew had spoken to them. Two days went by, and no one had heard from Joni or Ernestine. People who called them were not getting an answer, and friends of theirs were starting to get worried. Kelsey Spann, Joni's best friend, who she considered a sister, decided that she would go over to the house to check on the family and make sure that they were okay. On Tuesday, July 8th, 2003, two days after Joni and Ernestine and the children were last seen, Kelsey went over to their home, and when she got there and went inside, she walked into a horrifying scene. Joni, Ernestine, Marcus, Lindsay, and baby Marshall were all dead. They had all been shot, and there were 22 caliber shell casings scattered throughout the home. When police arrived on the scene, they found a gruesome, chaotic scene. The house had been ransacked to give the impression that perhaps this was a robbery gone wrong. But when they turned Joni over and see that she had also been stabbed, they started to realize that this was likely a crime of passion. They were unable to locate the knife, but they were able to determine that the knife that was used was taken from the kitchen of the home because there was a knife missing from the butcher block. Investigators discovered that the killer had entered the home through the sliding glass door, but there had been no signs of forced entry. There was also nothing missing from the home despite the appearance. And so the theory quickly emerged that Joni was the intended target. But they didn't know why, 
and they also didn't know why anyone would kill three children, including a six-week-old baby. It was unimaginable. When investigators learned that Joni was married, they tracked Vincent down so they could tell him that his family had been murdered. As the spouse of Joni, they also needed to rule him out as a potential suspect. But as it turned out, Vincent was not in Bakersfield. He had flown to Ohio on July 2nd to see his brother and then went to North Carolina to see his mother after. When police located him, he was in Elizabethtown, North Carolina. And so when police in North Carolina informed Vincent of the murders, according to the detective that interviewed him, he was inconsolable. At one point, he even asked for a trash can because he thought he would throw up. When the investigators spoke to Vincent, it was hard to get a read from him. He was visibly upset, and from what they could tell, he had a solid alibi. He was hundreds of miles away when his family was killed. As news began to spread throughout Bakersfield about the murder of an entire family, people who lived in the community were terrified. The idea that there was someone walking amongst them who was evil enough to murder five people, including three innocent children, was unsettling to say the least. No one could imagine who did this or why. But as investigators began to take a deeper look into the facts of this case, they quickly learned that things are not always as they seem. On July 8, 2003, the bodies of 39-year-old Joni Harper, her mother, 70-year-old Ernestine Harper, 4-year-old Marcus, 23-month-old Lindsay, and 6-week-old Marshall were found shot to death in their home in Bakersfield, California. Joni's husband, Vincent Beverly, told investigators that he was hundreds of miles away at the time. But as investigators began to look deeper into this case, they discovered just how evil some people can be. The murders of five people had rocked the community in Bakersfield. Both Joni and her mother Ernestine were pillars of their community and well-respected. The idea that someone would come into their home and murder not only them, but also Joni's three children was unfathomable. Eddie Harper, Joni's brother, told Dateline back in 2009 that when he heard the news, it came in pieces. He said that at first, his cousin called him and told him that Joni and Lindsay had been shot. And then he said two hours later, he called back and told him that not only had Joni and Lindsay been shot and killed, but his mother and Marcus too. It wasn't until the third call that he got the full story. They were all dead. Across the country in North Carolina, Police had spoken to Vincent, who had what appeared to be a solid alibi. But still, police immediately had their suspicions of him. And so Bakersfield instructed the police in North Carolina to place Vincent under arrest. But after a few hours in police custody, he was released and he returned to Bakersfield. Vincent was the most likely suspect, but... He not only had an alibi that put him on the other side of the country, he was also the principal at a local elementary school. Like Joni and Ernestine, he too was a well-respected member of the community. On the surface, 
There was nothing about Vincent that made people believe that he was capable of murder, especially not this kind of murder. As the investigation continued, detectives checked Vincent's alibi to make sure that he had, in fact, been in Ohio the day of the murders. They checked his credit card statements and found purchases in Ohio on July 6th, the day that they believed the family was murdered. Vincent's credit card being used appeared to be proof that he was where he said he was. While the investigators tried to track down leads and witnesses, the funeral for Joni, Ernestine, Marcus, Lindsay, and Marshall was held. Vincent, who was still on police radar, attended the services where he sat in the front row and cried. And while detectives had cast a cloud of suspicion over Vincent, people, including Eddie, Joni's brother, didn't think he was responsible. Eddie told Dateline that he had never heard his sister or mom talk about Vincent having a temper. And he said after the funeral, Vincent came up to him and told him that he was not there and that he did not commit the murders. After the initial part of Vincent's alibi was confirmed through the credit card records, investigators said that they did begin to look at other possibilities, like perhaps Joni wasn't the target. Maybe Ernestine was. They knew about her community activism work and thought maybe she had made someone angry about something. Ernestine had also been aware that the work she did came with its dangers, and she'd even purchased a revolver for protection. Detectives knew that with a murder like this, they couldn't leave any stone unturned. Whoever had done this needed to be found fast. Over the next several months, investigators worked to find the missing pieces to this puzzle. And as they dug deeper and deeper, Vincent's alibi began to unravel. After initially getting the credit card statements that seemed to place Vincent in Ohio, investigators pulled the surveillance cameras for the stores where the purchases were made. And when they did, the person standing at the counter at the time the purchases were made using Vincent's credit card wasn't Vincent. It was his brother, Melvin, who was a similar height and build. When they figured out that it was Melvin on the footage, investigators bring him in and question him. And at first, Melvin denies using his brother's credit cards. But after they continue to question him, he eventually admits that he had, in fact, used his brother's cards and that Vincent had told him what to buy. Melvin's admission was a huge bombshell. Investigators had been able to prove that Vincent's brother had been the one using the credit cards. But even if it was his brother, that didn't mean that Vincent wasn't in Ohio. His brother told police that he had been there the entire weekend. And Vincent's lawyer told Dateline that he had given his card to his brother to help him and that that wasn't unusual. According to his lawyer, Vincent was with his brother Melvin until Friday and then spent the weekend with his other brother, Troy. And he claimed that witnesses other than his family can place him in Ohio. But investigators were not convinced. Melvin had already lied to them, and there were no receipts for the time that Vincent was allegedly with his other brother. 
After detectives spoke to Melvin, they started looking at Vincent's travel history and the days before, during, and after the murders. They were able to confirm that he had taken a plane from California to Columbus, Ohio on July 2nd. And once he arrived in Ohio, he had rented a car and drove to his brother's house. But when investigators checked the odometer from the rental car, they discovered that between July 2nd and July 11th, there were 5,424 miles put on the vehicle. And once they calculated the distance, police concluded that the many miles on the car in that short period of time was proof that the car had been driven to California and back. After months of investigating the Harper family murders, police were beginning to piece together their theory of this case, and they were convinced that Vincent Brothers was the killer. But even with the evidence they had, they still needed more to prove their theory, that Vincent had flown to Ohio to create an alibi, but then once there, drove his rental car back to Bakersfield, murdered his family, and then drove back to Ohio. And so the Bakersfield PD along with the FBI, brought the rental car into a lab so they could see if there were any bugs in the radiator of the car. Now, because certain bugs are only found in certain parts of the United States, investigators wanted to see if they could find evidence of bugs that were only found in California. And so they tested the car and sent the results to UC Davis. And when they came back, the lab had found several bugs that they knew only inhabited areas in California and west of the Rocky Mountains. Police were getting closer and closer to solving this case. From the beginning, they had suspected Vincent, and now the evidence that they were finding was pointing directly to him. Now, aside from the evidence that police were collecting, they had also looked into Vincent's past and found out that he had previously been accused of domestic violence. In 1988, while married to his first wife, Vincent, according to police records, was convicted of misdemeanor spousal abuse, and he served six days in jail. After that marriage ended, he remarried in 1992, but a year later, his wife filed for divorce. She said that her husband, Vincent, was violent and threatened to kill her. Now, in 1996, while working as a vice principal, Vincent was also accused of assaulting a coworker who had come to his home one day. She said that Vincent hit her, drug her into his room, and then took pictures of her. She said she tried to call the police, but he yanked the phone away. After she left, she said she did try to report the incident to police, but because of Vincent's reputation, she said that police discouraged her from making a report. At the school where she worked at the front desk, she said Vincent would touch her inappropriately and call her at home, harassing her and threatening her. Eventually, she left and took a leave of absence and said Vincent had created a hostile work environment for her. The school district had received the complaints made by the woman and said they investigated the claims and warned Vincent of his behavior, but he was not formally punished. After all the information that police had learned in the months since the Harper family murder, they believed that Vincent Brothers had killed his family, and 
they believed that they had enough evidence to support their theory. And so, in April 2004, Vincent Brothers was arrested. Police said that when they arrested him, he appeared to be getting ready to flee. He was selling his things and had put his house on the market. For many, the arrest of Vincent, the elementary school principal, was unbelievable. And those who knew him best had a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that he was being charged with murdering his family. How could the same man that greeted students before school and was a mentor to some be the same man who murdered his own children? In January 2007, Vincent's trial began. Over 100 witnesses testified during the trial that lasted four months, including Vincent. Prosecutors presented a case that was circumstantial, but it was compelling. They laid out the timeline of what they believed happened and how Vincent drove back to Bakersfield to murder his family. The defense tried to tear apart the prosecution's argument. They argued that Vincent was in Ohio and that there was no proof that he had driven back to California. And the representative from the car rental agency said that the odometer readings were not always accurately put into the computer. And they argued that he would not have been able to make it to California and back in the time frame the prosecution had presented. The defense tried their best to prove that the prosecution's theory of this case was not only wrong, but impossible. But in the end, the jury did not believe the defense or his client. And after three days of deliberation, the jury found Vincent guilty on all counts. In September 2007, Vincent Brothers was sentenced to death and, as of today, is sitting on death row in San Quentin Penitentiary. It's unbelievable to imagine anyone being evil enough to walk into a home and murder three generations of one family. There are no circumstances that adequately explain why someone would murder three babies. This was a senseless, brutal murder, and there cannot be any real justice. Some people who knew Vincent still can't believe that he would do something like this and question whether or not they got the right person. But the family and friends of Joni and Ernestine are happy that justice has been served and that their killer got what they deserved. May Joni, Ernestine, Marcus, Lindsay, and Marshall rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Threads. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.